couple of areas, uh, but not too quickly because it's really important that we get this. Uh, now, we're going to go just a little bit past noon because it's about, uh, we've got about 35 minutes if we end at noon, so we might be like we were last night, maybe about 10 minutes beyond that. I just want to let you know. And if you need to leave, nobody's going to be offended at that. Um, so let's talk about this idea. We've talked about adornment. Let's talk about apparel. I'm going to say apparel. So here's another way that ladies uh, in, in their, one of their unique temptation areas is they know how this affects men. They know it instinctively. Uh, it's not little boys playing dress up typically. It's little girls. Uh, you know, they're on their mommy's shoes to teeter and they think they're going to break their leg. They know instinctively it's built in them to know that they feel pretty when they adorn themselves and dress up. So it's built right in them. Now, God has no problem with proper adornment, uh, you know, to, to, to be just unadorned and not caring for your personal appearance. That's not bringing glory to God. Uh, but, but he wants us to adorn ourselves properly. Now, let's talk about apparel. Um, the original apparel in Scripture was none. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. just want to clear that up. Genesis 2, verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That's talking about the original creation. Now, that's hard for us to imagine because there's so much sensuality and temptation associated with nakedness today, but that's because of sin. Some Hebrew theologians actually teach that the glory of God covered them. It was their covering. And so, so they were naked. That's the original state. Now, now, we know the story that Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, she sinned first. Adam followed. And so they uh, fell from their position in God's favor. Now, immediately, they understand something. And our society is so perverse and so far from God that we don't even get this anymore. But immediately, they understand, oh, my goodness, God showed up to fellowship with us in the cool of the day. And we're naked. How did they know that? It was built in them by God to know that when sin entered the world, their nakedness was now a shame and a danger to them. God institutes two principles in Genesis concerning modesty. One is distinction. There's a distinct way that men clothe themselves and women clothe themselves. That, that we learn over uh, Scripture. So, but, God, but in Genesis, God institutes the principle of modesty. And, and then God also institutes in Genesis this principle of distinction. It starts even before there's clothing, even before there's sin, male and female created he them. So two principles that we see with regard to clothing. One is the principle of modesty, which is to cover the areas of the body that God asks us to cover. And the other principle is distinction. Uh, there's distinction in the sexes. And as uh, clothing makes its appearance in the world, and God teaches and instructs his people, that principle of distinction between male and female, it stays. Okay? So, um, here's what we see. Genesis 3, verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They, we don't even know that anymore in culture, but they knew it then. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Everyone say apron. The Hebrew word is hagora, H-A-G-O-R-A, hagora. It means a girdle or a belt or a loincloth or an apron or a loin covering. And that covers the sexual area of the body. 
uh, the pubic region and the hips. And that is, this is so important to me, that is man's idea of modest apparel. As long as you have your sexual organs covered, you're modest. If you watch any society that becomes perverse and falls from modesty, the Roman Empire did it, cultures throughout history are doing it, and sadly, Canada and America are doing it right now. And you will find out that they will say, we've even got it on the books in the law in Canada, and you have it in some states where as long as your sexual organs are covered, you're modest, you're okay. It's not an offense to society. That is man's idea of modest apparel. Now, here's what's important for you to know. That's not God's idea of modest apparel. And, and it doesn't matter what Hollywood, Hollywood does or what culture does or what anybody says. We're interested in God's opinion on modesty. Watch this. Verse 10, Genesis 3.10. Adam said, God shows up. Now, Adam is standing in his fig leaf speedo bathing suit is getting my vote for the world's most uncomfortable garment, probably. Uh, but he's standing there in his garment. He's clothed himself. It says in verse 7, uh, they made themselves aprons. And so they, they did this on purpose. Man's idea of modest apparel. But when God shows up in verse 10, Adam says, uh, God, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid, watch, because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam had just walked with God the evening before. He's only, he's less than 24 hours removed from the presence of God. And so when God shows up, he understands that his idea of covering up is not God's idea of covering up. And he says, oh God, I'm naked in your sight. I made myself man's idea of modest apparel. But when God shows up, it's not God's idea of modest apparel. So here's what happens. Their covering is not acceptable to God. Look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and, watch, he clothed them. So we don't have to guess at what God's idea of modest apparel is. God created clothing for us. The word coat is the Hebrew word kutane, K-U-T-T-O-N-E-T, K-U-T-T-O-N-E-T. Kutane. Kutane means a tunic. It has sleeves. This is by definition. It comes down to the knees, sometimes to the ankles. It doesn't have to come down to the ankles. So here's what a kutane or a coat is. This is what God created for us. It's a loose-fitting garment with sleeves that covers from the neck to the knees. That's a kutane. Those are the areas of the body that God said, I want those covered up. And this is God's idea of modest apparel. We don't just teach this because, you know, it's from Corinth or it's from Ephesus or it's from Judaism or early Christianity or the 1920s or 40s or the turn of the century or the 1960s or 1940, whatever, when the UPCI was formed. That's not why we teach this. We teach this because in the fall of man, when man came up with his idea of modest apparel, God said, nope, uh, you've sinned, you're naked. Your nakedness is now a temptation to each other in the human race. And so I want these areas of the body covered. Now, you can wear more than this. Uh, in Pakistan, when I go to Pakistan, I've been there several times uh, for our church. The ladies over there wear a head covering. And I, w I would recommend that if any lady goes, that you wear a head covering. Why? We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Uh, but, but that's important in that culture. You don't want to offend that culture before you even win them to God. 
And so just because you're American and you have a right to, you know, you don't have to wear that, but, but you don't want to offend the culture before you win them to God. And so you can wear more than this, but this is God's minimum standard. So what is a kutane? What is a coat in the eyes of God? What is modest apparel? This is God's idea of modesty. Uh, it is a garment that covers from the neck to the knees. It has sleeves and it's loose fitting. That's a kutane. By definition, it's, it's a kutane. And so that's God's idea of modest apparel. And you watch this come through the, uh, the Bible and it never changes. When you come to Paul writing to Timothy and Peter writing in his context and they use the word apparel, uh, that word in the New Testament is the very same uh, word in, in Greek. That is uh, a katastole. Uh, that's K-A-T-A-S-T-O-L-E, katastole. And, and so that whole idea is, is unchanged. And, and so, you know, basically that, that's where we are. We say, if in the Old Testament God said, cover up from the neck to the knees, loose-fitting sleeves, and, and in the New Testament, the very same, it's a Greek word this time, but Paul and Peter are both teaching, wear the same kind of garment that, that, that God gave us in creation. It never changes from Genesis 3 to 1 Timothy 2. It never changes from Genesis 3 to 1 Peter 3. It never changes. God's idea of modest apparel, um, that never changes in Scripture. So we don't have a right to change it. And, and I would say this about our particular culture, now I'm talking about North America, Canada and America, many of the other cultures in the world, they are more modest than we are. My friend Brad Thompson, who's a great missionary in Guatemala City, he said, Raymond, I remember when television came to Guatemala. I've, I've been, he's been a missionary for 30-some years. He remembers when television came. Here's why he remembers when television came. Because all of a sudden, the women who had been so modest, they start seeing these American television programs from Hollywood. And he said, I remember. It impacted our culture. Uh, the Indian people, they've always had this fascination with jewelry, so that was always a little bit of an issue. But they were modest. The ladies wore beautiful, long, flowing dresses, and, and they didn't cut their hair. It was just they were beautiful. And he said, all of a sudden, they're starting to look, try to look like Hollywood. And he said, we still have it. If you go up in the village churches in the mountains, totally different culture. But you come into the cities where they've got television, and it's, you know, proliferated. He said, we now have the same challenges. And, in fact, they've taken it sometimes to almost a, a, an even worse extreme. And they're very immodest in some areas. But he said, I remember when that happened. Uh, because sin is contagious. You know this? Immodesty is contagious. Unholiness is contagious. And so God gives us these standards, and he says, this is my idea of modest apparel. And, and, and you know, like in visiting uh, Pakistan several times, really, in general, uh, many of those cultures are more modest than we are. And, and so we have to learn that it's not about culture. It's not about American culture, Canadian culture, Pakistani culture, Guatemalan culture, Chinese culture. It's not about culture. It's about what does God say needs to be covered in the realm of modesty. So, so basically, that's, that's where we are. Now, then we get into this. Okay, so God gave us this. It's, it's basically a robe. And men and women wore robes for the first 1,900 years of, uh, of, of uh, modern society, modern times. Uh, the major part of human history, all through the Old Testament, and then uh, much of what we call New Testament times. And so 
if men and women both wore robes, how do we then say, well, this is appropriate modern attire for a lady, and this is not appropriate modern attire? Because they both wore robes. Well, here's a couple of things that you need to know. First of all, if you look in Scripture, look for this word. Everybody say breeches. Breeches. Now, in the South, in America, what does breeches sound like to you folks? Yeah, because that's what they are. The priests in the Old Testament, they wore breeches under their robe. Because they had to walk up on the altar, the high altar in the tabernacle later in the temple, and offer sacrifice. And God told them, he said, guys, wear some breeches under that robe. Because if it's a windy day, and that's what it was for. Now, now, here's what's important. Women never were permitted to wear breeches. That was a masculine apparel. Here's something else that women didn't do. Uh, men in Scripture are, are told, gird up your loins. What's that mean? Well, if they both wore robes for most of human history, uh, men would take the back hem of their robe and bring it between their legs and tuck it in their waistband, and that made a loose-fitting pair of what we'd call pants for them to do their work. For a woman to do that was a disgraceful and immodest thing for her to gird up her loins. In the book of Job, God tells Job several times in the book of Job, gird up your loins like a man. Because it's a masculine thing to gird up the loins. In other words, God says, Job, if you're going to be a man, I'm talking a physical illustration of masculine responsibility. And so men in Bible times wore what we would call pants. If you've ever seen, this is my culture, uh, Canadians very uh, attached to the uh, British culture, and, and you folks, uh, you know, you had a civil war, a war, and, and you got rid of all of that. Uh, and Scotland almost did this week. Uh, but but uh, Canadian culture is very attached to British culture. And so I've seen this many times. You look at old pictures, and, and you've seen these in your culture too. Uh, you'll see some guy standing beside one of those old bikes with the big front wheel and the little back wheel, and it's this old picture, and he's got pants on. And his pants come to here, and he's got big socks that come up to there. You ever seen those old, old pictures? And, and that was breeches or britches. The first pants for men didn't go to the ankle. The first pants for men went to here, and they made up the difference sometimes with socks. Why did they go here? Because that's where a man's robe hit him on his leg when he girded up his loins, and that's what they thought. Well, if we're going to make pants, we don't wear robes anymore, but we'll, we'll do that. And now we, we've gravitated to uh, what we would call a modern pair of, of trousers or pants for guys. In the Bible, both men and women wore robes, but there were masculine ways to use clothing. Girding up the loins was entirely, totally masculine. Wearing breeches was totally, entirely masculine, and women didn't do that. So here's why we teach what we teach. And again, if you don't do this yet, this is not heaping a big load of condemnation on you or saying you're less spiritual. My goodness, we're just thankful that God's done the great work in your heart. This is all stuff that you learn. That's why we spent some time last night. This is all the stuff that you learn as you grow. We're not expecting you, if you're a year old in the church, to act like somebody that's 40 years in the church. We're, we're not expecting that. God loves all of his kids, and God's family's not a dysfunctional family. And so everybody here loves you even if you don't get a clue about this yet. We, we don't care. We know you've got time to grow. I didn't worry that Matthew walked later than Emily in our home. Uh, Emily was the firstborn. We had all kinds of time. You wonder, like, 
how do we ever do this, you know, with, with like the second kid? Uh, the second kid, you know, if you, your family album tells you this. You know, the first kid, there's 4,259 pitchers. Second kid, 2,000 pitchers. Third kid, three pitchers. Uh, you know, it's just uh, like it's, it's unreal because we get busier. But, but Emily was, you know, she's kind of like her dad, and so she's like take charge and whatever. We despaired that Matthew was ever going to talk because Emily did all his talking for him. She was like little mother to him. Um, he talked at a different age. He walked at a different age. I can't remember about potty training. I do remember this about potty training. One day, Beverly, <laughs> she walked by the bathroom uh, in our house. She put Matthew in there and perched him. Uh, you know, he was in the middle of, of that very strenuous time in life called potty training. And she walked by. She had the door just kind of partly closed, and he's in there. And he's braced himself because if he doesn't, it's going to be a disaster. And she walks by the door, and Matthew's looking at the ceiling, and he doesn't know she's there. And he's praying, God, I not fall in. God, I not fall in. <laughs> he, he learned just about everything at a different time than Emily. You know what? We never said, why aren't you more like your sister? Your sister walked five weeks before you walked. No, because he's our kid. God's family we don't care how long it takes you to get this. We just want you to get it because it's God's design and plan for you to please him. We don't care really when you get it. We don't care how long it takes. We want you to get it because God said it, not get it because we gave you a list and you do it. So, so if, if this is uh, new to you, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. But here's why we do what we do. So our ladies, here's what we teach them. We teach that for you to gird the loins, that's not uh, feminine apparel, biblically speaking, to please God. So we teach our ladies not to wear uh, pants because pants are a masculine way to wear clothing. Now, a man could wear a robe because he's still covered, but a lady, there's one extra stipulation for her, and that's that she's not to gird her loins. And so any garment that shows a separation of the legs above the knee, any garment that's like pants, and, and so you, you can see a, a, a separation of the legs uh, above the knee. That's not a modest garment. Any garment that doesn't cover to the knee, not a modest garment. Any garment that's so tight that you can see the outline of the body, not a modest garment. Why? Because a kutane and a katastole were a loose-fitting garment that covered from the neck to the knees. In a woman's case, they did not gird their loins. A, a man, his legs were still covered, but... His garment showed a separation of the legs. That was girding the loins. And so we teach our ladies uh, not to wear pants because they gird the loins and not to wear something shorter than your knee because it, it, it's immodest. Not in the world's sight. Who cares? Not in Hollywood's sight. Who cares? In God's sight. That's what matters to us. And so that's why we teach uh, our ladies not to do that. For both sexes, by the way, we teach, you know, you don't come like running into church in your onion skin shorts because that doesn't cover uh, the leg, down to where God says. Uh, ladies, God could have told you uh, what he, uh, there, there's a uh, poteres is the garment uh, in Revelation chapter 1 where John sees Jesus and he's clothed in a robe down to his ankles, down to his feet. Uh, poteres, God could have said, uh, wear a poteres, cover the whole leg, but he didn't. He, he said, ladies, here's the standard. And and so it's cover uh, down to your, to your knee. And... Uh, so, so that's why we teach what we teach. Now, here's something cool. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. 
The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. That's a strong word. So God's very serious about this. But please notice that the commands are different for women and men. A man, guys, all the guys, lift your hand for a sec. All the guys, here's your commandment. Don't put on women's clothes. We got it? We good? Okay, then that's that's good. We're done. But ladies, because of your unique temptation area, you get a different command. Watch this. It's different. It doesn't say don't put on men's clothes. It says a woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. The word literally means to reach toward or have the function of or resemble a man. Why? Because God knew that would be a temptation in different cultures throughout the ages for women to dress in masculine-looking clothing. And so your command's different. Now, the word there, when it talks about a, a woman's garment, uh, the word is simla, simla in Hebrew. Simla is the same concept of what we get as a silhouette. So literally what God says, and this is why we teach what we teach, a man's silhouette should not resemble a woman's silhouette, and a woman's silhouette should not resemble a man's silhouette. How in the world is that? I mean, we're people. We have two legs, two arms. Here's how. A woman doesn't gird her loins, and you see this on every bathroom door in America Where does that come from? That didn't come from America or Canada. That comes from ancient times, the principle of what is modest for a woman and what is modest for a man. And so that principle of simla, when you go to the restroom, simla, the silhouette of a woman. How is the silhouette of a woman different than the silhouette of a man? It's in the fact that she does not gird her loins, and he does gird his loins. Old Testament, New Testament, and today, and that's why we teach what we teach. Again, if you don't understand that, nobody's going to meet you at the door with a list of rules. We just want you to know why we do it, and if you are doing it in honor to God and honor to your pastor and trying to obey Scripture, we want you to understand that there's more than just being part of a united Pentecostal congregation. It's not that. It's Scripture. God teaches us these principles. And it never changes. It, it's, it's all the way through uh, the Bible. And, and so that's the deal. That's why we do that in that particular area. And I want to go to our last area today because I, I don't want to keep you uh, way over time. So everybody say adornment. That's a challenge area for ladies. Everybody say apparel. That's a challenge area for ladies. Why? Because instinctively ladies know that if they dress in a way that exposes their body, or if they dress in a way that adorns themselves and draws attention to their face, they get the attention of men. And that's not why our ladies do what they do. Some people dress uh, to be admired by everybody. Um, That's not why we dress the way we dress. They're trying to please uh, others, or they're trying to please themselves. We dress to please God. And if somebody else is pleased, bonus. But, But we dress to please God. And uh, so that, that's why we do what we do. Uh, guys, um, we need to use some common sense in our clothing, too. Uh, I don't think, like, uh, my grandmother used to call it singing tight clothes. I don't know what singing and tight had to do with anything, but singing tight clothes. We, we just need to have common sense in the way we dress. The purpose of clothing, biblically speaking, is to cover the parts of the body that God said to cover 
not to expose them. And you can expose them by wearing something that's so tight. So, so that's why we don't do that. That's, that's why we're, we're careful with that. And ladies, especially for you, because of the impact that has on your brothers in the congregation, especially. Okay, so last area, everyone say attitude. Now, the dictionary will tell you that an attitude is an inward feeling that is expressed by an outward behavior. And, and in the Bible, ladies are told to have an attitude, an outward behavior. It's an inward attitude first, but it's expressed in an outward behavior, an attitude of submission, an attitude of modesty, an attitude of meekness. They're, they're instructed in Scripture to do that. Now, this is not because a woman is inferior to a man, not at all. It's because of the order of God's creation. He was created first, and she was created to be his helpmeet or his helper. Now, ladies, don't get offended by that, that you're your husband's helper or helpmeet, because the only person who's called helper in Scripture more than you is God. So you're in good company. You're okay. Uh, you're, you're his helper. Okay? You're also his helper because he's a disaster without you, by the way, but, but that's, that's the deal. Okay. Now, there's one area where Paul just lays it out. This is not the only time this is referred to in Scripture. This is not just one passage that's isolated and blah, blah, blah. But this is the longest passage where this is talked about. And so we're going to go to the longest passage. There are other little snippets here and there through Scripture, but this is the longest explanation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to talk about what our ladies do with their hair. Because that attitude of submission and acceptance of her place in God's order is best expressed in what she does with her hair. Now, the world would think that's crazy, but God says, no, that's, that's what I want. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. By the way, that's the pattern for discipleship. Uh, people say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. You know what they're saying? I'm living a disastrous life, so I want to get by with all the stuff I'm doing. So you follow Jesus, don't look at me. That's not the scriptural pattern. How are our new believers going to know how to live modestly and godly? And how are they going to know how to worship? And how are they going to know they need to come to the altar? And how are they going to know they need to pray? And how are they going to know they need to give? They're going to watch us. And Paul said that's the biblical pattern. Like your young kids learn from your older kids how to talk and all that stuff. Be ye followers of me as I follow Christ. Now watch this, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and you keep the ordinances, paradosis. You keep the commandments that I've given you that, like I delivered them to you. Now Paul's about ready to launch into something really, really important here. And he's going to talk about something that is not the issue today. But in talking about something that is not an issue today, he's going to lay his hand on a principle that's eternal, and that eternal principle is still for us today. So again, I want to explain this well. Uh, he's going to deal with a cultural issue that doesn't apply to us today. But he's going to base his requirement, his paradosis, his uh, ordinance, he's going to base it on something that is eternal that does apply to us today. So here we go. Let's jump in. Verse 3. I would have you know that the head of every man is Jesus Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Jesus Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman, 
that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, she dishonoreth her head. It is even all one. It's the same thing as if she were shaven. Now, let's, let's talk about this for a few minutes. In Corinthian culture at this time, there is no problem with Christian women cutting their hair. That's not what Paul's talking about. Because uh, Christian women didn't cut their hair. Jewish women at this time didn't cut their hair. In fact, in this time in history, modest women in any culture didn't cut their hair. But there were women who did cut their hair in Corinth. They were the temple prostitutes that worked at the temple of uh, Athena, the temple of Apollo, whatever. And they were basically like temple prostitutes. Their pagan church services, uh, you, you would go and do terribly lewd, sensual, sexual things and pay money to do it, and that was your offering. You got a prostitute, uh, their services for your offering. Uh, this happened. Uh, you, you can see it in history. Uh, it, it's uh, the, the Delphian oracles. There was another temple across the harbor in Delphi. Uh, it, it's just unreal, the things that went on in those temples. So Paul's looking at that. Because here's what's happening. This dynamic doesn't affect us anymore. We're, we're so entrenched in Christian principles, even in America, that, that this doesn't happen anymore. But back then, remember that women were downtrodden. Women were looked at as, you got three cows, two camels, and a wife. She's your property. It was terrible, but that was the way society was. Christianity comes along, and Christianity is the first religion, the first force, the first movement that actually looks at women as people and valuable in the sight of God and values children. It's so precious. I've, I've been in Africa a few times in the country of Ghana. We have uh, this incredible uh, Sunday school program. Uh, African culture, by and large, precious, precious people. But by and large, they just look at, and, and, and like it's getting close to 50% of Africa is under 16. It's, it's just unbelievable, the stats on children. And yet children are totally looked at as like they're not even people until they can contribute to society as an adult and they can do heavy labor and whatever. And so these precious people, they just kind of disregard children. If a child dies, it's like, oh, the child died. It's, it's unreal. There are exceptions, of course, but in general, that's the culture. But when the church got into the nation of Ghana, and that's just one place I'm familiar with, um, we started having children's choirs and children's Sunday school and children's crusades. And it is so amazing to go into a church service in Ghana and see them cheer and worship and, and clap for the children because that doesn't happen anywhere else in their society. And so the church is just growing by leaps and bounds. Now, we don't face that dynamic here, but they, they did. And many of the ancient world cultures were far worse. If a child was born with a deformity, they left it on a hillside so it either died or the wild animals got it or some per pervert got the child and abused it. And they didn't care because it was a de deformed child. This is the atmosphere that Christianity came into. And when Christianity comes in, the ladies are set Free. Ladies, you're not property. Ladies, you're not less than a man. Ladies, you're not just some kind of uh, insignificant creature. No, you're God's daughter. You're God's child. 
And so women start getting the Holy Ghost, get baptized in Jesus' name, and joining the church. And the church was totally unique. It doesn't feel unique now because in America we were built on principles of the Bible. And so, of course, we talk about women and equality. And although your country and mine, we haven't always done it perfectly, we've always talked about it. And now we've really got it in many, many different areas of society. Why is that? It's because this nation was built on the Bible. That's why that is. And, and so, you know, the, the whole deal about uh, uh, this women's equality business, uh, they, they talk about Christianity as though we hurt women's equality. We were the first to do women's equality. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. So these ladies, they're saying, oh, my goodness, like in Jewish culture, I had to veil my head at certain points in history. Other points in history, not. But in Corinth at this time, a modest woman, a modest woman wears a veil. That's the culture in the city of Corinth. If you see a woman in Corinth in the first century that's not wearing a veil over her head, she's a temple prostitute. And so that's how you know who they are. And, and, and Paul said, ladies, we've got a little challenge here. This is the background to what he's writing. Ladies, here's our challenge. I know you're free in Christ. I know you're not required by God to wear a veil, but here's our issue. In Corinth, if you don't wear a veil, you appear to our city like a temple prostitute in one of those temples. So Paul's saying, ladies, I need you to watch this. In our Corinthian culture, if you're not wearing a veil over your head, not a veil like you see in some countries of the world where only the eyes are are seen, but it was a veil, a head covering. Paul said, if you don't wear a veil, you're disgracing the authority of your father in Corinth. If you don't wear a veil, you're disgracing the authority of your husband in Corinth. So ladies, here's Paul's argument. I know you're free in Christ. I know you're the same as the brothers. But wear a veil so you don't offend our culture before we even have a chance to reach our culture. That's the context in which he's writing. So he says, ladies. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. So if a man prays or prophesies and he wears the veil, he's dishonoring his head, which is Jesus Christ. Because his head, God, is invisible, and so he should not wear a visible head covering. But ladies, in our culture in Corinth, we need you to wear a head covering because your head is the man, your husband or your father, if you're unmarried. And wearing the head covering in Corinth, it honors him. So because he's visible, you wear a visible head covering. Ladies, if you come to church without your head covering on, without your veil on, verse 5, you are dishonoring your head. You're dishonoring your husband or you're dishonoring your father if you're unmarried. Now here's where Paul just starts hitting heavy. He said, it's even all one as if she were shaven. Ladies, if you're going to be rebellious to what your pastor asks you to do, you might as well shave your head like the temple prostitutes do. They would cut their hair and lay it on their altars in those pagan temples. Sometimes they would shave their whole head and lay out their long hair on the altar, maybe burn it as a sacrifice to those pagan gods. And so if you saw a woman with cut hair with a shaved head, you knew she was a temple prostitute. And Here's what Paul says to the ladies at First Apostolic Church in Corinth. He said, ladies... If you're not going to obey what I've asked you to do and wear a veil so you don't disgrace, here's the last thing we want. Oh, we know what those women do at that apostolic church because that's what every woman without a veil did in that city. Paul said, I don't want you to bring disgrace to your church. I don't want you to bring disgrace to your husband or your father. 
So I'm asking you, ladies, to wear this veil. And if you're not going to obey, then just go shave your head. All the ladies. Now, today, maybe they'd say, yeah, it would look like some Hollywood celebrity. But then they said, oh, my goodness, he's serious about this. Because no modest woman in any culture would shave her head or cut her hair like Paul's talking about here. Uh, Verse 6, let's go there. In verse 6 it says, For if the woman be not covered, if she's not going to wear a veil, then let her be shorn, let her cut her hair. But if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn, cutting the hair, or shaven, taking the hair totally off, then let her be covered, let her wear the veil. Ladies, you know, if, if it's a shame to shear your hair, if it's a shame to shave your head, and every lady in that culture knew it was, he said, then I need you to wear the veil. Because if you don't wear the veil, they think you're a prostitute at one of these pagan temples. People say, look at that verse there on the screen. Oh, well, Paul, God says it's a shame for a woman to cut her hair. It's a shame for a woman to shave her head. Oh, it's just a shame. What a shame. Well, I, I'm, I'm still going to do it. It's just a shame. No, no, the word shame is a serious word. It's ashkron. It means something that is filthy something that is opposed to modesty or purity. So God's being serious through the words of Paul here. And so I want to be an honest Bible teacher. In that verse, it says, ladies, don't shear your hair. Let it not be shorn, which means don't cut it. And, And let it not be shaven, which is to cut it off. But it doesn't say length there. And and so I want to be honest and transparent. There's nothing in that particular verse that would tell you how long is long, because that's the question we get. How long is long? Is it long hair if it's this long or this long or whatever? So, But later in the chapter, he'll answer that question. So so verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. He shouldn't wear the veil because he's the image and glory of God. His head is invisible, so his covering is invisible. Uh, But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. No man in this room got here without the aid of a woman. That's why you're on this planet. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. She came second in the order of creation. God literally, through Paul, reaches back several times in one chapter to the order of creation. This isn't about Pentecostal culture. This is about a woman accepting her place in the order of God's creation and rejoicing that she's been made a woman and not wanting to be a man. Verse 10. We're going to read verse 10 now, and then we'll come back to it at the end. We're going to end there today. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head cause of the angels. Now that's such a powerful verse. I want to do it last. Okay? So we're going to come back. But I would say this. God gave you one changeable physical characteristic. The rest of your physical characteristics are not changeable unless you want to go pay money and have surgery. But you have one physical characteristic that is changeable and that's your hair. Women can cut their hair. Men can let their hair grow long. But to do so, uh, it rejects God's order because the Bible teaches us that men should cut their hair and women should let their hair grow long. And, And so we'll come back to verse 10 in a moment, but this idea of God's order is really important. Why do our guys cut their hair uh, like they do? 
Uh, why do I cut my hair like I do? It's because in the Old Testament, God's priests, and we're priests and kings unto God in the New Testament, God's priests, it says they pulled their heads. That means they cut their hair along the hairline. That's why our guys cut their hair like that. Uh, we, we pull our heads. We cut our hair along the hairline. Some people have curly hair, and some people have straight hair, and some people their hair sticks straight up, and some people their hair is all frizzy, and some people have no hair. But we cut our hair along the hairline. That's what we do. Uh, because that's what the Bible pattern is for the priests of God, and we're New Testament priests to God. Now, look at verse 11, and we're coming back to verse 10 at the end. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, she was created out of him, even so is the man also by the woman. He got here because he had a mother, a woman gave birth to him. But all things are of God. Now, here's Paul coming down to the end of his talk here. Judge in yourselves. So this is so common sense to Paul. He says, judge in yourselves. After what I've taught you, judge in yourselves. Is it comely? Is it becoming that a woman would pray to God uncovered? That a woman would come to church in Corinth without the veil? And the obvious answer is no. If that's the custom of temple prostitutes in the same city, that they're the only women in the city that don't wear a veil, Paul said, is that becoming for an apostolic lady to come to church without a head covering on? The obvious answer would be no. And then he says, verse 14, doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame to him? How in the world does nature teach us that a man should have short hair and a woman should have long hair? Very easy answer. Uh, just take about uh, 15 seconds here and just look around front to back on both sides. Just look around. Just look around. Okay, look at the ladies. Look at the guys. Okay, you got it? There. Nature just taught you that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. How's that? Because men naturally lose their hair as they get older. That's how that works. Nature clears off the head of some men, teaching us that nature itself teaches us that a man should have short hair and a woman should have long hair. If a woman shows up at church and, and her hair is falling out or going away, or she's got some kind of baldness, we say, oh, that poor lady, she's got some uh, genetic disorder or she's got some disease or whatever. Nature teaches us that men have short hair and women have long hair. Nature does. And, and some of you guys are a really good illustration for me uh, today. Thank you for being here. Uh, verse 15. <laughs> so verse 14 says, if a man has long hair, it's a shame to him, verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. Doxa, God has a good opinion of her. It's God's blessing and glory on her head. It's a glory to her for her hair is given her for a covering. Now, watch this. This is incredible. Paul comes down to his conclusion, and and uh, and thankfully we're, we're only going to go one more verse and then jump back to verse 10 because Raymond needs to come down to his conclusion too. So, but Paul says, if a man has long hair, the word in the Greek is kome, K-O-M-E. If a man has long hair, kome hair, it's a shame to him. But if a woman has kome hair, it's a glory to her. Kome means, the, the whole tense of the verb here is, is a, a, a condition that remains to be seen. In other words, if you translated that literally into English, it's if a man has hair that continues to grow, 
it's a shame to him. He needs to cut his hair. But if a woman has hair that continues to grow, come, it's a glory to her. Literally, it's if a man has uncut hair, it's a shame to him. But if a woman has uncut hair, it's a glory to her. The, the whole tense of the verb there is, is to teach us that if a man continues regularly cuts his hair, he's accepting his order in creation. If a woman does not cut her hair, she continually lets her hair grow. She never cuts it. She's accepting her place in the order of God's creation. You're one changeable physical characteristic that you control. And because God gave you that, he has a stipulation. He said, I'm asking you to accept your place in my creation. The man was the head of the home. The man was created first. The woman. And so when, when, when we accept that, we give glory to God. The men do. When they continue regularly to cut their hair, they, have, uh, they do not have uh, kome hair. But a woman does have kome hair. She has uncut hair. It doesn't just mean long. And that's why I said in verse 6, it doesn't specify how long is long. But here it does. Because kome means uncut. Kome literally means let the hair grow. So if a man lets his hair grow and never cuts it, it's a shame to him. But if a woman lets her hair grow and doesn't cut it, she has kome hair and it's a glory to God. Now why is this important? Because Paul introduced something here that causes some questions. And you'll see church groups that they misinterpret this. And so they all wear a veil. You see it even today. They do it because of a misinterpretation here. They say, well, Paul was teaching the ladies to wear a veil. Yes, he was. Except it was for Corinth. Um, in certain periods of time, God's people, uh, the women didn't wear veils. Other times they did. So how do we know what applies for today? We know from right here. Paul says in verse 15, if a woman has kome hair, she doesn't cut her hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. Paul said, ladies, the reason I've been telling you you need to wear a veil, which is a temporary custom, and it only applies to Corinth, is because really you understand this principle of covering because God gave you a permanent covering. Your hair is your real covering. So ladies, I'm not saying that for all time in all cultures, some things go across culture in holiness. This wearing a veil, this was a temporary issue. But Paul wanted the ladies to understand how important their submission is. If your pastor asks you to wear that veil, because if you don't wear a veil, it disgraces the church and the culture, then we should obey him and we should submit. And Paul said, ladies, if you don't get this principle of submission, you might as well go be like the temple prostitutes in the pagan religions because submission for you is incredibly important because that's your role in your home and that's your role as a feminine believer. That's your role as a woman and that's your role in God's kingdom is that precious, beautiful meekness and submission. And I'm not saying you have to wear a veil for all time. Paul knew and God knew that there'd be cultures when the wearing of a veil had nothing to do with how culture perceived modesty. But here's what doesn't change. Three different times in this one passage, Paul reaches back to the order of creation and says, Ladies, from creation, here's the way it was. Men had short hair and women had uncut hair. So your hair, ladies, is given you 
literally when it says instead of a covering, it's for a covering. It means instead of a covering. It means to serve as a covering. And that's, that's what it is. So Paul says, I'm asking you to wear the veil in Corinth. But the reason I'm doing that is because, ladies, your principle of covering is eternal. You are covered by God. And if you accept that, it brings God's glory on you. In verse 16, he ends this little paragraph by saying this. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, some people would have you think, well, Paul said, but if you don't like this, don't bother. Not the Apostle Paul that I read about. Uh, he's not saying that. He's saying, if anybody's going to argue with this, I want you to know that although Corinth wears the veil and some other cities don't wear the veil, Corinth has ladies that are temple prostitutes. Other cities might not even have a temple. I'm saying that as far as this covering business, no other New Testament apostolic church has any different teaching than this. If you're going to argue about ladies having a covering, we want you to know that we have no other custom than this, neither the churches of God. In all the churches of God, our ladies have uncut hair. Corinth might be an exception as far as the veil's concerned, but no ladies cut their hair. They have uncut hair. Now, I want to go back to verse 10, and we'll end right here today. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. There are two kinds of power in the New Testament. There's actually more than two words for power, but these two are very significant. One is uh, dunamis. Uh, Acts 1 and 8, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. That's dunamis power. Dunamis power literally is doing power. It's power to do something that you don't have the power to do in your flesh. The gifts of the Spirit, they operate out of dunamis power. When somebody gives a message in tongues, that's not them. That's God's power. Dunamis power is the power to do something that you don't have the power to do. But there's another kind of power in the New Testament. It's exousia power. Exousia power is restraining power. It's power to not do things that your flesh already has the ability to do. Your flesh can lust. You need exousia power to restrain that. Your flesh can be angry. You need exousia power to restrain that. So the gifts of the Spirit, they grow out of dunamis, doing power. But exousia grows out of the, or, or the fruit of the Spirit grows out of exousia power. The fruit of the Spirit is God's power to restrain your natural tendencies so you can have peace and joy and love and long-suffering and meekness. So, so there's two kinds of power. One is doing power. The other is restraining power. It's either restraining your flesh or it's restraining the devil's influence over your flesh. Now, when we look at verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have exousia power. That's the word there, exousia, on her head because of the angels. Here's what Paul's picture is, ladies. You do something when you accept your role in the apostolic church. And when you obey these holiness standards that we call them, you do something for this church and any church you're part of and any service you're part of that the men can't do. For this cause, a woman has exousia power on her head. If she accepts her role in God's creation, if she submits and if she honors God, see a lady, an apostolic woman is marked in her own body by her covenant with God. Her long, uncut hair 
is a symbol of her submission in the spirit realm. Not in Hollywood, in the spirit realm. And the Bible says, for this cause she will have restraining power, exousia, power on her head because of the angels. Literally, the holy angels see a woman that submitted and they understand that power. And the fallen angels, they see a woman who submitted to God, marked in her own body with this covenant of holiness, and they know they better back off and back up. In the angelic realm, in the supernatural realm, I know it's nothing to our world. I know it's nothing to modern culture. But in the spirit realm, you ladies that are willing to be marked by your covenant of holiness in your own body, and you got to comb that long hair, and you got to uh, do up that long hair, and you got to wash that long hair, and sometimes you feel like this is a nuisance, but it's not a nuisance. It's a covenant between you and your God. And you don't think it does anything. You just think it makes you look weird. No, not at all. The Bible says you have restraining power on your head because of the angels. The angelic realm recognizes your submission to God. And they pay attention to it even when the world doesn't. So here's the picture. Because many things in Scripture are word pictures. And the word picture here, when it uses the word exousia, it means liberty of action. It means authority. It means delegated power. Or you could say it means influence and permission and jurisdiction in the spirit realm. Here's the picture. Men, when you live your holiness standards properly, it brings to the church much, if not most, of our offensive power. I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And that goes on the attack against the devil. That's our offense. But ladies, when you live your holiness standards, that restraining exousia power, I believe that ladies, when you live your holiness standards, it brings much, if not most, of the defensive power to the church. You have a different role that's just as valuable when you live your holiness convictions. The old saying that says the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, that's true, ladies, because you have so much to do with raising a godly next generation to serve God, way more than the men do, way more than the men do. And so here's how it works. When an angel, fallen or a good angel, sees a lady who comes into a service, who lifts up her hands, who begins to sing or pray or witness or teach or, or, or mentor his, her children. When, he, the, when an angel sees that, they recognize this restraining power. So it's a picture. And literally, ladies, here's the picture for you. With men, the picture is offensive. With you, it's defensive. And here's how God sees you and the angels see you and the church sees you if they've got a clue about what's going on. In the spirit realm, a woman who begins to pray and lift her hands and worship, when she's marked in her own body, willingly, cheerfully, joyfully marked in her own body by her covenant of long, uncut hair, it's not magic hair. No, it's not about the hair follicles. It's about your submission to the order of God. And when she lifts up her hand, the picture is restraining power. Literally, it's a picture of a woman who's anointed and submitted. And when she goes to prayer, her whole spiritual posture says, not my husband, devil, not my kids, devil, not my pastor, not my church, not my marriage, not my family. She doesn't even have to say that verbally. She says it with her posture spiritually because she's marked in her body with her own covenant before God. And so, ladies, you do something for this church. 
that the men with all their strength and muscles and biceps, they couldn't do in a million years. You bring a restraining power spiritually. And that's why holiness, ladies and gentlemen, is so vastly important in the 21st century because our world is spiraling out of control, even with morality and normalcy. But we've got holiness. It's a fence against the enemy. And we're going to close right here. I'd like all of our ladies to stand for a moment, if you would. If you've never heard this before, if you don't do this, if you don't understand this, uh, you know what? Just You just keep doing what you're doing and keep growing like you're growing. And this church loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change so we'll love you. We already love you. But here's why we teach what we teach, because this brings a power into your marriage and a power into your home and a power over your kids and a power in the spirit realm and a power when we worship and a power when we sing and a power when we go to prayer because you bring that restraining power because of your covenant of submission before God. I'd like our ladies to lift up your hands, and with those beautiful feminine voices, I'd like you to start lifting up a praise to God right now. You don't understand, ladies, what you do when you begin to lift up prayer. The fallen angels and the holy angels, they see not your hair follicles. It's not magic hair. No, they see your covenant before God, and they see your submission before God. And as you pray over your home and over your husband and over your kids and over your church and your pastor, you bring a defensive power. But guys, we have a part to play too. I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, so we bring an offensive power to the church. So I'd like you to stand with us, and I'd like you to lift your hands in those big, bold, masculine voices, and I'd like you to step into your role, because ladies and gentlemen and brothers and sisters, when we work at this together, when we do this together, we bring incredible power to the church of the living God, and that's why lives are changed, and that's That's why addiction is broken, and that's why people are freed from bondage. It's because there's power in living a holy life. There's power in this. Would you just take 30 seconds and, I mean, lift up your voice. Let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. I will lift up my voice like a trumpet, and I'll bless the Lord. I understand that there's power in living a holy life. I understand there's power in the commandments and the covenants and the convictions that God puts in my life. 